It's great to be with you wherever you are and wherever you're watching this at whatever point in time. Glad you can join us. Uh, Jeff mentioned at the beginning uh, the idea of baptism and just a response to that. I just want to say to be a witness to a baptism on Friday a couple of days ago uh, down at the Haven where Jade got baptised. Such a beautiful thing to um, be part of and to witness and the joy and the spirit that was just flowing through through Jade as that happened um, is really a sight to behold. So can I encourage you, if that's something you haven't yet done, to really consider what it would look like to be part of that with us on our Celebration Sunday coming up. Um, as I was leaving the baptism, actually, there was a family that I sort of walked past and I overheard the end of a, I'm assuming, a joke. And... Um, it was this, what do Kermit the Frog and Alexander the Great have in common? And if you're thinking about that, the answer, yes, is their middle name. That's right. So I thought I'd come up with my own. So here's a picture here. What does a pirate and Andrew Johns have in common? Think about it. Think about it. Um, the answer is... Nothing at all, other than I'm going to mention both of them in the message today. So keep your ears out for that one. So as Jeff prefaced for us, we're in the back end of chapter 6 of John. A little bit of a background on where we've been. So Jesus has fed the 5,000 people plus, plus more. Um, and he pointed out that the manna, the, the bread from heaven back in the Exodus days was temporary. And even what he had just fed them with, with the bread and the fish was temporary. Um, but he was the true bread from heaven, the bread of life. And anyone who would accept that um, and believe, remember John's whole gospel is about belief. And whoever would believe will have eternal life. And then they started grumbling because they're going, well, we know this bloke and we know where he comes from. We know his family. How can he say he's come down from heaven? And so let's pick it up. And I'd love you to have a Bible in front of you or, or have it on your app or on your phone. And in verse 51 of chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. So at that point, Jesus is pointing towards the crucifixion. So today, we're going to continue in this scene and we're going to um, finish off the end of chapter 6. And remember, just like John, the gospel writer, is saying that the, the um, whole point of his, his message, is, of his gospel, is that we would believe, there's also a major theme running through of a theme of life, that you would have life. So let's keep that in mind. So we'll pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to start in verse 52. And it says this, So then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And so we go on to verse 60. 
And in verse 60, we read, On hearing this, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? The same verses in the Amplified Version says this, When many of his disciples heard this, they said this is a difficult and harsh and offensive statement. Who can be expected to listen to it? Now, I don't know about you, but it sounds like a hard and potentially offensive statement. There's a New Testament scholar and historian, Gerald Sitzer, and he wrote a book called Water from a Deep Well. And he talks about four reasons why the early Christian church, so from the time of Jesus through to about you know, three centuries on from there, the early Christian church were persecuted mercilessly. And he said there was four main reasons. The first one being that they would seem to be a foreign cult. So anything that wasn't Roman and didn't connect to the Roman gods was seemed to be foreign and it seemed like a cult. So that was persecution reason number one. They were accused of being atheists because they did not subscribe to and give themselves to the whole pantheon of Roman and Greek gods that existed at the time. So accused of being atheists. They were accused of incest because they would actually call one another brother and sister and they even had this term that when they got together was called a love feast. And so they were accused of improper behaviour. I'm glad we don't call our gatherings love feasts today. Gathering is a good term. But the fourth one, the one that really fits where we're at today, they were accused of being cannibals. And they were persecuted because they were accused of being cannibals. Because it was deemed, believed, that they ate the body and drank the blood of Jesus every time they celebrated the Lord's Supper. So these are some reasons that the early church is being persecuted. And it fits in beautifully because when we look at the passage we're looking at today, it would make sense. So eating flesh and drinking blood, when taken literally, could not be done in any Jewish context. The audience knew that the laws against eating human flesh was completely banned and taking any blood into you as well was completely banned according to the Jewish law. The only way to eat flesh was for the blood to be completely shed and drained from the flesh, which meant the flesh had to die and then the blood be drained. And that's how they would prepare their meat. That's how they would slaughter their animals in a kosher manner. Um, and then there were only certain kinds of animal flesh that you actually were permitted to eat in the Jewish law and the Jewish context. So what was Jesus pointing to when he was saying this? So as, as I'm looking at all of this and as you're hearing this, and maybe you've looked at this in the past, it sort of brings us to a question that I think we have to answer. Do I take, do we take the Bible literally? Now we understand that as we look, the Bible, 66 books collected, put together, in that there's all these different types of genres of writing. We have narrative and we have history and we have prophecy and we have apocalyptic literature and we have poetry and we have all these types of writing that is all contained into the Bible. So to ask the question, do you take the Bible literally 
in some ways does not make sense. And I want to give you a little bit of an example here. Well, yes, I take the Bible literally as literally as I take other kinds of writing. I want to share with you, uh, many of you would know I'm a bit of a sports tragic and love rugby league. And just in a bit of spare time the other day, I was scrolling through a website and I found this sports report um, on a state of origin match that happened earlier this year. Listen to some of these statements. So this is a written sports report. It says, Tom Trebojevic answered with his own magic and another origin hat trick as he tore Queensland to shreds in the 50-6 triumph. In the 15th minute, the Blues weren't so much going nowhere as they were going backwards in a real hurry. But Latrell Mitchell stood the tallest, producing an audacious 40-metre bust down the sideline that was equal parts a tiptoeing ballerina and brutish strength. But then when Trebojevic finally found in was finally found in his selected right centre position, poor old Kurt Capewell had no chance of stopping the Blues thoroughbred. And as immortal Andrew Johns pointed out in his commentary, it seems only the pesky Trebojevic hamstrings stood in his way. Tom has been on another planet tonight, Johns was commented. Uh, commented. And there was more, but I'll just pause there. So if I'm going to take this sports report literally, here's some things to consider that there was magic happening somewhere during this game, that a particular player got the state of Queensland and tore it to shreds, um, that at some point the whole team started moving backwards instead of what they would normally do, that someone who was not the tallest on the field became the tallest on the field and became a ballerina in the process, um, that also in that team there was a horse playing, one of those thoroughbreds, um, and then we've got a guy who's immortal, will never die, commenting that a couple of muscles were standing in the way of a particular player and that he was doing all this while he was on another planet. Now, none of us would take any of that literally. We understand the context of the writing and the type of figurative language that's being used. But let's move away from sport. Let's go to the Bible. And so there's this book in the Bible that I reckon many of us avoid um, I haven't heard too many sermons preached from this book of the Bible. It's called the Song of Songs. Um, it's found after Psalms and after Proverbs. And I just want to share some verses out of chapter 4 and out of chapter 7 of the Song of Songs. It's this uh, love poem between a man and a woman. So here's some of the things. Listen to this. How beautiful you are, my darling. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. And your temples are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Your graceful legs are like jewels. Your navel is a rounded goblet and your waist is a mound of wheat. Your neck is like an ivory tower and your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Beautiful imagery. What would this lady look like? Here's an image I found where someone has taken these things and as they literally are, are described, and very attractive looking lady. We've got all those goats hanging off her head. We've got this tower that's just pointing out um, for a nose. We've got a bunch of sheep that are sitting in her mouth. We've got some honey dripping off her tongue and there's someone catching the honey 
the neck, look at that tall neck with the shields hanging off the tower. And uh, I didn't get all the picture, but there was a mound of wheat um, significantly around her waist as well. Now, we, we've, we have to understand that the use of simile and metaphor is there to enhance our understanding, not to confuse it. See, a problem we see in our passage today is that the audience was taking what Jesus was saying literally and therefore were having a real problem with it without understanding the deeper spiritual meaning that was there through his figurative language. Now, Jesus regularly did this. Now, we've been journeying through John's Gospel. We're currently in chapter 6. I'm going to give you a quick explanation out of chapter 2, 3 and 4 where John has already done this. Listen, Jesus says, this is in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years for us to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So John, the gospel writer, is giving a bit of an explanation of what Jesus was meaning. Then in chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus responds, how can anyone be born when they're old? How can you enter into your mother's womb a second time? Again, Jesus was not saying this is something literal that needs to be done. In chapter 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And, And he says, sorry, she says to him, how can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would actually ask him and he would give you living water. And so she said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is really deep. Where are you going to get this water? And again, figuratively, Jesus is saying, no, it's not about the actual water. I'm explaining who I am, what I can provide. And then in the Sermon on the Mount... In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uses hyperbole or or exaggeration to make a point. You've probably heard this one where he says, you know, do not look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Now, I've never seen anyone walk around with a plank in their eye. It'd be really hard to fit the glasses on. I don't know, you know, Phil Crossfield, you might have to do something there. Um, But we know it's not meaning it to be taken literally. What about this one? This will be on your screen. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Same thing. It's better off to lose that than to end up in hell. Now, we've got a picture there of of a pirate who's got the patch over the right eye, the hook on the right hand. Now, my problem with this is if we take the Bible literally... I reckon I should be seeing, and I would be one of these people who looks like that pirate. We should have pirates everywhere, or people who look like pirates with patches and missing hands, because if we take the Bible literally at every point, we would have to be doing that because we have sinned with our eyes and we have sinned with our hands as we've lived through life. But we don't do that, do we? And so we've got to realise that as we look at today's passage, that it's not about taking it literally and becoming cannibals, which the early church was accused of being. So we've got to wrestle with what is this actually saying? What is Jesus saying? What is he meaning? What is he pointing us to? So Jesus says to them, 
after this, and we're in verse 62, he says, if you think this is hard to get your head around, then what are you going to do when you actually see me ascend back to heaven? Like that will blow your mind. And so he has to unpack this for them. And he makes it really clear in verse 63 that he's not meaning this to be literal. So picking it up in verse 63, we read, The Spirit gives life, Jesus says, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning of which of them would not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The message translation of that verse says this, after this, many of his, of his disciples left. They no longer wanted to be associated with him. Verse 67 continues, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So chapter 6 then finishes, and I don't have it on the screen, with Jesus making a statement uh, about having chosen the twelve to himself, but knowing that one of them would later betray him. So I get to this point, was the teaching really hard to understand for the audience that Jesus was speaking to? Or was it more that it was hard to accept and obey once you understood it? Was it really hard to understand or was the harder bit accepting it and obeying it once you understood what he was talking about? See, I think we struggle to grow when we only listen to what we can initially understand. And that's true in the natural, but that's also true in the spiritual. We struggle to grow spiritually when we only listen to what we can initially understand, when we only see things at a surface level. So the question out of today's passage is this, how do we eat his flesh and drink his blood? How do we consume him? How do we take him into ourselves so that we remain in him and he remains in us? Because that's what Jesus is pointing to. How do we do that? And the answer is, and Jesus points this out in verse 63, it's through the word. Through the word. He says in verse 63, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Now, Jesus himself lived into that reality. If we go back to Matthew's gospel, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter four of Matthew's gospel, Jesus was in the wilderness, in the desert, being tempted by the devil, tempted by Satan. And we pick up in, in verse 3, if you can turn to it, it won't be on your screen. The tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Because he'd been out there for 40 days, 40 nights, hungry, nothing to eat. Tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, 
His answer comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I want to remind us that the word, we often think of the printed words in a Bible, the word of God, the living word, and absolutely there is power in that and that can be our sustenance and we feed on that. Um, But I want to jump back to where we began weeks ago in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. You'll be reminded of this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word, the living Word. Jesus spoke words and there is spirit and life in the words He has spoken. Many of those words are recorded in the Gospels. And so as we engage with the Bible, as we engage with Scripture, there is living word that can come out of those pages and feed us and sustain us and and uphold us and shape us and mould us, which is exactly what Jesus is referring to in this passage, that you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. You need to consume him. You need to take the word into you and let it sustain you and and nourish you and, and shape you. So those who were in the audience as Jesus is saying this. Now remember, we had 5,000 people, 5,000 men, expected a lot more with women and children being counted, that were hearing him, seeing him, engaging with him, eating the stuff that he miraculously provided, and then it dwindled down to just the 12 being left. Now that is a significant bit of teaching a sermon that just scatters people and they leave and walk away. And the 12 that are left, but those in the audience who knew the scriptures, those in the audience who were teachers of the law or the scribes or the religious elite or even people associated with them and they were in the mix, they would have known that scripture points to God planning to do something new. And there was a new covenant that was going to be unfolded one day where God would place his word, his law, his character, his nature deep into the lives of people. If we go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, one of the prophets from the Old Testament, listen to what he says here. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The multitudes who left Jesus, the multitudes who walked away with this when they heard this hard teaching could not see the new that was coming that the signs have been pointing towards. They could not see the new 
that was happening around and in Jesus. The new Genesis, the new Exodus, the new covenant, the new kind of life that Jesus was bringing and offering and inviting people into when they believe in him. That was the experience that was on offer. That was the life going forward that was on offer when Jesus spoke it and is still on offer to each of us today. And this is where Peter's response is really quite profound. We see in verse 68 and 69, Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I'm left today with the question, am I tempted to turn away when the things of God become hard to grasp? Are we tempted to turn away when the things of God and the teaching of Jesus and the commands of Jesus become hard to grasp or hard to obey? I don't know about you, but it seems like the Christian life starts off with this simple gospel that God loves you, but it doesn't stay simple. But life, as Peter said, is found in Jesus and nowhere else. Where else would you go? And that's what I think we're left with. We're left with the only person who can offer us the very things that we crave as human beings. They are only found in relationship with Jesus. Where else would we go? Let me pray for us. So Father God, I thank you for not only this teaching, but I thank you for the illumination of your spirit and your written word so that we can be a people who, who understand what it means to, to be in relationship with you, to follow you. I pray that as we explore this hard teaching today, we would see it for how you intend it, that we would see it as figurative language that points us to the true source of life that engaging in you as our true source of life is not a weird thing to do. It's not something that's going to cause problems for us. It's something that actually brings us to a point where we go, ah, yes, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been searching for. There is nourishment. There is sustaining. There is peace. There is joy. And so, God, I pray that as your church, as your people today, we would be people who would consume you in the way you desire us to consume you, that we would eat and drink of your word, your life-giving spirit in a way that it overflows from us to the world around us for your sake and for your glory. Would you help us in this in your name? Amen.